heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Well, we're back with you now for another Q&A. But, you know, before we get started, I want to tell you right up front, there's there's a lot of confusion about the unvaccinated and the vaccinated uh, and the misinformation out there. And, you know, a lot of this, we just need simple clarity uh, to understand the difference. You know, a lot of the medical institutions and, and the uh, political institutions as well are pushing the fact that, you uh, you know, if you're unvaccinated, you're the cause or you're the problem. Uh, and you're seeing that uh, when they come up with studies and a lot of numbers. I want to try to get some clarity on that today with some of these uh, uh, numbers and all that that we're hearing so much about. And I'll give you an example in just a moment here. Uh, I want to jump right into it. Let me get Dr. Peter McCullough on here. And as you all know, uh, Dr. McCullough is, he, well, uh, there's no way to put this otherwise. He's a medical warrior. Uh, he's been on the front lines from the beginning of this uh, pandemic. And we see it with the outreach. And so many of you have responded so enthusiastically to these Q&As. Uh, we're trying to get and answer as many of these questions as we can. Uh, Dr. McCullough is an academic internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist uh, from Dallas, Texas, uh, considered the world's top expert on COVID-19 pandemic response. Um, he has uh, really, uh, you know, truthfully said, uh, turned his life upside down to uh, uh, to take this challenge on that we, we've seen him take on. So uh, clearly one of the go-to voices here. We're thrilled to have him here on, on our platform at America Out Loud. All right, Dr. McCullough, I, I want to start right off before we I got a lot of questions, a lot of stuff here. We'll see what we can pack in here. But here's the thing. Let me let me just read you first about the unvaccinated in the hospital. So, all right, NPR, they say this COVID-19 cases are particularly surging in areas of low vaccination. More than 97 percent of people entering hospitals right now are unvaccinated. Uh, Cosmo says, why are there so many vaccinated people in the hospital? Uh, so they're turning around and saying, why are the vaccinated people in the hospital? The Israel Times says most COVID-19 patients at Israel Hospital are fully vaccinated. So it's kind of flip of the first one, which and there's a lot of those out there. They say the unvaccinated are driving this thing. Um, and, and, you know, the last one, uh, COVID-19 vaccines, unvaccinated account for the vast majority of many of the news cycles are saying, according to state and federal data, vaccinated people account for less than 2% uh, of the hospitalized. Now, I'm hearing this a lot from people about the hospitalizations. In fact, I've had doctors say right to me that the unvaccinated are causing the problem and overwhelming the hospitals. What's the truth on this? The single most important determinant of who gets hospitalized and who doesn't is early treatment. So I think this is very, very important. And that whether or not they've been vaccinated is, is much more of a secondary issue. And it may be that those who uh, took a vaccine are much more in tune with their risks of COVID-19. They're much more in tune with getting treatment for COVID-19 if they do indeed uh, become infected with the virus. And so it may all be confounding. So I would point the um, listeners to a couple 
data sources. The first is the CDC website dated August 23rd, 2021, where the CDC has recorded 11,050 patients who have been hospitalized or died after being fully vaccinated, 11,050. This isn't everybody, but this has been what's uh, uh, voluntarily reported up through some reporting systems. The important point, Malcolm, is that of the deaths, 87% of those fully vaccinated who die of COVID-19 are over age 65, and that fraction for hospitalized is 70%. Now, of those uh, who have either died or hospitalized, they note that uh, 21% and 25% respectively have uh, just coincidental positive COVID-19 tests and don't actually have the illness. And now the real issue is, uh, what is this story about in the hospital, vaccinated or not? Here's the answer. Fiona Havers from the CDC published a paper uh, titled COVID-19 Associated Hospitalizations Among the Vaccinated and Unvaccinated Over Age 18 Years Old from the COVID-Net Network. And then Nathaniel Fillmore published a paper, The COVID-19 Hospitalization Metric in the Pre- and Post-Vaccination Eras as a Measure of Pandemic Severity, a retrospective nationwide cohort study. He's from the VA healthcare system in Boston. And both agree, once we're in the era of Delta, it's 23% in the hospital vaccinated, 23%. As we get more Delta in July and August, mm -hmm. as an epidemiologist, I'm telling you that proportion will rise to the same proportion of those vaccinated in the country. Well, let me add to that now, because what you say there's important. The, the UK is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world against this. Out of the nation, 68 million people, by the way, more than 45 million have received at least a single dose and 33 have been fully vaccinated. But listen to this now. A new report released by the Public Health England highlights the fact, what you just said, Dr. McCullough, in that more fully vaccinated people have died from the Delta variant compared to unvaccinated people. Well, and I can just tell you here, David uh, Seidman, uh, published Israeli state-run media admits the COVID vaccine does not reduce spread and indicates that um, at Can 11 News, uh, reporter Nov Rainey dropped what many are calling a bombshell in Israel and indicated that in Israel that 90% um, of those with COVID-19 were fully vaccinated and only 10% were unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. So I think it's clear. Uh, it's clear that the vaccines don't protect against COVID-19 and that what people are hearing are false talking points that it's a uh, hospitalization crisis of the unvaccinated. Simply not true. Yeah. One last rumor to this, and this is one other point to this whole vaccine to clear up here. Uh, and this was a question that came in about the Myrna vaccine. Many people will say it may prevent you from getting uh, that it may not prevent you from getting SARS-CoV-2. But he, and here's what I'm hearing a lot of. And this question says, but it will prevent severe disease. This person, Wendy, is saying, is that true? Now, I'm actually hearing that quite a bit from doctors and others who say, well, you may you may have to get in the hospital, but the disease will be less severe. I, I've had people ask me that straight out. What do you say to that? It's my impression that in the vaccinated are more easily uh, treated and it's a more treatable condition. But I have to point the uh, individuals uh, interested in this to the CDC July 26, 2021 on their website. They indicate of those hospitalized, of those hospitalized, 
the mortality rate is uh, 19%. So it doesn't, doesn't, the CDC is not giving us data suggesting it reduces the severity of disease or the mortality with disease when it's that severe. And we know from the Pfizer application that the Pfizer vaccine did not reduce hospitalizations and death in the randomized trials. Okay, um, we're hearing a lot about which you and I've spoke about. We've talked to listeners about the monoclonal antibodies. Um, and there was a story you might have seen this just in the last many days, and it plays to this question I'm going to ask you here uh, that Florida had, uh, as a particular example, had acquired from GlaxoSmithKline uh, because the Biden administration was rationing these. And, and in fact, I think you and I even touched on this uh, a week or two ago that there was a lot of hype about there being a shortage of these things. Well, then we found out the administration was rationing them and pulled them out of, well, and I know this gets very political, hot potato, but away from a lot of red states like Florida, for instance. So they went ahead and purchased them separately, uh, as I say. Now, the question and the reason I bring that up, I think it's an important point to mention to folks, but Terry uh, says this, hi, Malcolm. I so much appreciate this kind spirit in which you conduct yourself when sharing the questions that come in with Dr. McCullough. And I also appreciate Dr. McCullough's wisdom and patience in taking our questions. God bless Terry. Huh? Uh, when seeing my primary care doctor this week for a follow-up after having some blood work done, I asked her what her protocol would be in the event I were to test positive for COVID-19. I'm 67 uh, and have not had the vaccine and healthy. She said she would send me the monoclonal infusion if it was available. She indicated, however, that it may not be available as the federal government has taken control over from the states. She said if that were the case, she would administer four shots in the place of the infusion. I've never heard of these four shots being given. I don't know what they are. What is Dr. McCullough's knowledge of these shots in the place of the infusion? Have you heard anything about this? There has been a randomized trial of using the Regeneron monoclonal antibody and giving a subcutaneous shot, actually a fairly large volume, several shots. But that trial was in close family members who had not yet had COVID, but they were exposed to other people. They were basically uh, seniors, uh, let's say in a, in a multi-generational household. And it was effective in blocking the development of COVID-19. But I'll point the uh, questioner to a paper published in, um, in Health Affairs, and it's by uh, Bavin Sampat and uh, from the Columbia University in New York and Kenneth Shadlin, who's a professor at the London School of Economics. And in this paper, one of the reasons why I'm quoted, quoting the data so carefully, um, Malcolm, is to make sure our readers know how precise we are with information. In table one, they list the um, monoclonal antibodies, and they indicate that the um, Sanofi uh, Regeneron product uh, that's uh, under the Sanofi um, GSK Regeneron product line, that the US procurement for this was 100 and million, uh, do 100 million doses with an option to purchase 500 million doses. So we have fully planned on almost treating the whole country and it's inexcusable for anybody to be told there's a shortage. Yeah, it sounds to me like a lot of politics being played there, sadly. And this is with people's lives, which really irritate me. All right, here's a question from Colleen. Uh, she says, is it possible to have had COVID and not produce antibodies? Uh, she's saying articles all over social media claiming 40% of people who have had COVID don't have antibodies because they're pushing the vax. She said, so what do you think? 
It's important to realize that the commercially available antibody tests have to have a positive control, what they determine to be a positive antibody level. Most of these positive controls were determined from very sick people in the hospital, very sick people. So they may have actually had a higher antibody rise than someone who is sick at home. So the positive controls are hard to hit, but if you hit them, uh, clearly uh, one has had COVID-19. We know from published studies about 15% of people recover from COVID cannot hit a positive antibody on the commercial tests, which would be Abbott, Roche, LabCorp, Quest, orthoclinical diagnostics. In my experience, the easiest one to hit is orthoclinical diagnostics by donating a unit of blood and hitting a positive antibody test result. But the answer is about 15%. If someone thinks they have COVID, don't have a confirmed case to start with, didn't hit the antibodies, go ahead and order a T-detect test, T-detect, different technology, has a very high positive predictive value if you've had COVID. All right. Uh, this one is from Kevin and Debbie. My family and I want to let you know how grateful we are for your, your humanitarian efforts to protect and defend people. There is, in our opinion, an evil attempt to control and manipulate humanity. We do not know where this is going, but the fear is taking away the joy of life. You're given tools to keep us healthy and aware of how to help ourselves. You're doing this because you care. The powers that be are making a fortune off these shots. There will be no end in sight of big pharma and big government and big tech if our lives, if we don't push back. Thank you. God bless you and your family and all of you who are pushing back. You speak truth. Now, I bring that up, Dr. McDonald, not so much a question, but I don't want to lose sight of some of these humanitarian points. And when people come out with comments like this from Kevin and Debbie, who are obviously very appreciative, um, it is a humanitarian effort. Uh, it, what do, do you get a sense of that in doing these kind of Q&As and the kind of interviews and uh, media appearances you're doing? I do. I've used the term crisis of compassion, that somehow the the f forces of fear and loneliness and despair uh, and people feeling they're been abandoned by the medical community, abandoned by their doctors and healthcare providers has left a crisis of compassion. And I've had so many patients, Malcolm, that I'm pretty convinced just a phone call once a day could help a sick person through the illness and help them avoid the panic and then the rush to the hospital. Uh, do you know that in the paper by uh, Fillmore that I mentioned from the VA of interest, I believe the number was 45% of people who were in the hospital in as a national sample, never had an oxygen saturation that fell below 94%. That means they got into the hospital, not because they had to go on the ventilator, they were in the hospital because they panicked. And if we had more compassion, we had better delivery of home treatments with phone, phone call follow-up, I think the vast majority of Americans would stay out of the hospital and get through the illness. All right. There are a lot of people looking for the protocol. There's a lot of talk about the protocol that you we've had success with, that you have out there and the frontline doctors have out there. Uh, Conrad says, my friend's father died in the hospital on the 18th, and now her mother is intubated. And there, is there any contact info for Dr. Peter McCullough to see if there are any doctors in the Chicagoland area that treat with this protocol? And I think what you'd say there is probably AAPS, is it not? Right. Go to the AAPS and download the treating physician guide, and you'll find doctors in the Chicago area. I have had one Area, Chicago area doctor on America allowed the McCullough report. And that's Dr. Alan Bain. Dr. Alan Bain has been on my show. 
He is an active treating patients in Chicago. The other uh, source I'd point people to is for inpatient critical care questions, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, flcc.net. They're the experts on inpatient care uh, and they should be uh, accessible to you on the internet. Yeah, and you know, it's funny you say the FLCCC. Someone actually sent a message in and said, Malcolm, please make sure you and Dr. McCullough pronounce the C's. This is a really important site. So I just want to mention that FLC as in cat, 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 FLCCC. That was actually sent in that point of view, that question. Uh, Rebecca uh, says, hello, I just watched Dr. McCullough talking to a church in Michigan. I think it was... uh, uh, in uh, July or August. I was so encouraged by it. I have never had COVID, but I am concerned about getting it and not receiving early treatment. Do you know of any doctors, medical facilities here in Michigan that I can reach out? Should I get the virus? I currently have a friend of the hospital and she's got pneumonia, low O2 and COVID. I am worried about her. She's only told me a little, but it doesn't seem that they are doing much for her because she's unvaccinated. I'm unvaccinated as well. And you see, there's a lot of people like this that are reaching out. And I think some of the things they say really tell a story, Dr. McCullough, when she said, well, people have a sense they're not doing anything for people because they, and people actually do this because you're unvaccinated. Some of the doctors and hospital uh, officials will actually, and I don't say this kindly, but they will actually snub you and look at you in a very odd way. I know because it's happened to me. Uh, in my own family. And they'll look at you like you're a weirdo with something. What do you mean you're not vaccinated? That's kind of, I guess, what Rebecca's referring to. But again, her thing about the doctors in Michigan, that that would be the same question with the AAPS, right? And the other one, the FLCC. Right. It would be. And let me state that, you know, uh, doctors in the hospital deal with drunk drivers. We deal with obese individuals who have diabetic foot ulcers. And doctors under no circumstances should be prejudiced or should uh, exhibit any type of pejorative behavior. Someone's choice on the vaccine, many people can't take the vaccine. So there's no reason for people to be segregated according to the vaccinated or unvaccinated. As we point out, the vaccines don't prevent COVID 100%. So we don't think anybody under any circumstances should have prejudice against them whether they took the vaccine or not in Texas. We have an executive order in April mandating in our government facilities, no vaccine discrimination. All right. Uh, Nydia says here, um, uh, I'm a runner. A runner that I've run with sometimes has gotten the uh, has gotten the Pfizer shots. So I know she is a variant factory and a spreader. (laughs) I'm thinking this outdoor activity will be safe. I also have lunch occasionally with a couple of out of commission runners who have gotten the Moderna shot. My concern is my elderly mother who lives with me, with me doing the iodine or peroxide gargling and nasal swabbing regularly and upon return to mom, as well as taking a a far infrared sauna when I get back to the house. Am I keeping mom safe? Uh, she says, and and, and she and this is why I, I kept this question here. She she's she keeping mom safe by doing this. And also, she says, what about hugging and meeting friends? Should should there be no hugging? Does or does that matter? I would say that I think shedding really, in my experiences, uh, occurs in somebody freshly vaccinated within the first four weeks of a vaccine and really close contact. We're talking about kissing or sexual contact. I think casual contact is very unlikely there's any, any transference of spike protein. And, and I don't want anyone to start to get to the point where they're doing um, uh, all kinds of excessive measures here on transference of the spike protein. I think we can go on with life 
And those, as long as we refrain from sexual contact and kissing uh, with uh, freshly vaccinated, I think we're fine. Uh, interesting question from Sandy. She says, uh, I recently heard that taking monoclonal antibodies reduces your natural immunity to COVID. Is there any evidence that's true? It does say that in the FAQ that they give for the monoclonal antibodies. And I don't think that's true at all. The virus really is an overwhelming infection. The body gets plenty of opportunity to get immunity to it. The monoclonal antibodies only work outside the cell. And the vast majority of the virions are inside the cell where T-cell immunity and other uh, forms of immunity have been shown. And there's never been a study showing that those who get treated with monoclonal antibodies have any change in their immunity over time. They always get complete, robust, and durable immunity. It's always one and done, just like chickenpox. Once you have chickenpox, you don't get it again, no matter how you're treated. All right. And uh, same thing to Stephanie. I'll shout you out there when you say, is it true the supply of monoclonal antibodies is running low or is it another fear tactor? We address that up front in the program. Uh, it seems to be very political in nature, but they seem to still be available. I'm not. Are you hearing any direct shortages, Dr. McCullough? I mean, at this point, or are people getting it? People are getting it. I'm not hearing about these shortages, but I think there's been enough fear mongering on the internet, on TV. Uh, I think our agencies and our facilities should let people know where these antibodies are. I tell all my patients to make some calls ahead of time. Make sure you find out what facilities around you have monoclonal antibodies. I've had the best experience with freestanding urgent care centers and emergency rooms. Yeah, and more of them are getting it, by the way. A lot of these urgent care centers, I've made quite a few calls, and they are now getting them in and making them available so you don't have to make the hospital. So it depends what area you're in, but that may be a possibility for folks. Uh, let's talk about herd immunity a moment. A question from Lori. She says, can Dr. McCullough please explain the argument against everyone needing to be vaxxed for herd immunity to COVID? I hear it on repeat that that's the only way we'll reach herd immunity and don't know enough about how that works to reply. Is, is that the goal? No, it's not the goal. We'll never get to zero cases. This is not like smallpox. Herd immunity means that once a sufficient number of people have natural immunity, they won't spread it so easily to one another. It doesn't, make the, doesn't mean the illness goes away. It just means we won't have outbreaks. So on March 10th, 2021, I testified in the Texas Senate. I said, we're at herd immunity in Texas, meaning that using a CDC equation, we had hit 80% herd immunity. Uh, and, and that meant that if, if we got 20% of people in the country, who, uh, in our state who developed COVID-19, it would be a disaster. So we don't want that to happen. It just means that an outbreak is unlikely. And so the public health officials backed me up. And then a week later, they opened up our baseball stadium, people sitting shoulder to shoulder, no mask. So herd immunity means you can go about your business without worry of a big outbreak. It doesn't mean the disease is gone. Yeah, well, they're doing that at the game, but then they're sending the kids to mass, the little ones. But that's a whole nother story, isn't it now? You know, uh, Jen, let me get to Jen's question. How can 96 percent of all U.S. doctors be covid vaccinated? She says makes me feel like being unvaccinated is a bad choice. Are these stats correct, Dr. McCullough? I don't know. I haven't seen any statistics among doctors. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Uh, doctors have very much bought into the vaccine uh, agenda. Um, I am aware of at least one uh, doctor who confidentially uh, and anonymously told me her story that she was vaccinated. Uh, she was neurologically devastated afterwards. She's in a wheelchair now after receiving Moderna. 
and she can't practice anymore. Oh my! And God. I asked her. I asked her, "Have you gone public? You're a doctor. You've been permanently injured with the vaccine. We know over twenty thousand Americans are permanently disabled with the vaccine now." And she goes, "No, I haven't." And I said, "Why not?" And she says, "Because I'm afraid. Uh, my husband's a doctor, and I'm afraid if I say anything against the vaccine, he'll lose his job." So, you know, we have such incredible fear and threat of reprisal now. Mm-hmm. I think if doctors uh, said anything about the vaccine or even admitted they didn't take the vaccine, they would be afraid of reprisal. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Dan says for over a year now, I have been taking the advice of certain controversial doctors to build my immune system through supplements and to prevent infection by knocking back every viral load through good oral and nasal hygiene. To date, I have not contracted COVID or maybe I was asymptomatic. Could I actually be preventing my body from gaining natural immunity to the virus? The answer is no. Because this good oral nasal uh, hygiene is working, there may be subclinical exposures to the virus, but if you make it all the way through the pandemic, you've actually have a victory. You know, it's no prize to get sick with COVID-19. Recently in Rome, a paper uh, produced by uh, Dr. Bruce Patterson showed among us who've developed COVID-19 ourselves, we've had the natural infection. Do you know they could recover the spike protein out of human monocytes 15 months later? Do you know what that means? That means we've been sprayed with the virus and the Wuhan spike protein, and it takes over a year to scavenge that stuff out of our bodies. So I think the real winners are people who never get COVID-19 at all. And if you can make it through the pandemic using oral nasal hygiene, more power to you. Wow. All right. Uh, Deborah says, uh, I learned so much from the podcast, especially the Q&A sessions. My question is in regards to the new Novavax vaccine. You said you were impressed with what you've read about it so far, but that any type of vaccine should be very limited in use. And you recommended that only senior citizens, those at high risk, for severe COVID and nursing home workers get the vaccine. So this uh, woman, Deborah, is 68 years old with no health issues. Would you recommend the Novavax vaccine for someone like me? I'm thinking my best strategy might be to acquire natural immunity from getting the virus and then treating it with Regeneron and the other multi-sequence drugs you highly recommend. My concern with the Novavax vaccine is that it may not offer protection against future variants, she's saying. So what do you think about that? Those are good points. The Novavax looked great with the legacy variants, and it was just as good as Pfizer and Moderna. It had longer duration follow-up, up to six months of follow-up, published in New England Journal of Medicine. So Novavax looked fine. It's not a genetic vaccine. It's five micrograms of the spike protein. It's possible because it's a recombinant spike protein product, it's possible it actually may cover Delta. So this is uh, very possible. We'd have to see the data. I think this individual is right on the borderline. I, I think likely if there were gonna be some recommendations in the future, it may settle down to over 65 and then clearly higher risk people, seniors with medical problems. Yeah, Uh, here's one from Steve on the topic we're on, uh, Dr. McCullough. And it is, um, I recently tested positive for COVID-19 and my doctor ordered the Regeneron for me in about three days in. I'm not vaccinated and don't intend to be. I'm 62 healthy, symptoms were cold and flu-like, but nothing severe. My question is, will I retain natural immunity or does the Regeneron override this? Uh, He will retain natural immunity. And the point I wanna make about his case is even though he had mild symptoms, everybody starts out with mild symptoms. The mistake I see is people say, doc, I just have a mild case. And I say, you wait three or four days into it and it's gonna be a severe case. 
So I love the idea that he got monoclonal antibodies, day three, felt well, probably breezed through the syndrome. That's the way it should be done. Textbook, his immunity is going to be intact. He's not going to get COVID again. Yeah. Uh, Allison says, I'd like to ask Dr. McCullough his opinion regarding probable future adverse effects and what the next few months will look like for the vaccinated. Now, this is interesting. So I've been following Dr. McCullough in his recent interviews and media appearances where he presents very thorough data on current adverse effects and lack of transparency. And while there have been other opinions on antibody-dependent enhancement and microclotin buildup, does Dr. McCullough see any of this or have any other opinions on future post-vax AEs, adverse events? We're now nine months after uh, we had a swell of people get the vaccine in January. We had 27 million people by the end of January in the United States at least get one shot. And we're now nine months into it. Unfortunately, we are not seeing the late emergence. Some people were worried about neurologic problems, uh, heart problems, uh, cancer, and we're not seeing that. There are some reports that uh, cancers are more detectable, and that may be because there's symptoms. But I think the, um, the data are not clear on whether or not there's an increased risk of cancer. So I think so far, so good. Uh, most of the action that we see with uh, blood clotting, uh, neurologic injury, myocarditis, various forms of paralysis, that's all very early in the first 30, 60, 90 days. I have some experience with myocarditis now, and happily, I was able to get a case resolved uh, after about 90 days of medical therapy and close, close attentive care. So I'm hopeful if there's no more vaccines, no more shots that we're going to get out of this without any more injuries. But I am worried if people start to buy into boosters. And I think everyone should know on September 17th, boosters were not broadly approved by the FDA for people to get. And without having data, the FDA suggested maybe those over 65 or high risk exposures from COVID-19 could consider boosters. But that meeting was far from an endorsement of boosters. Our CDC disagrees and our CDC has said, well, people broadly should get boosters. So Americans are left at a crossroads right now about getting boosters versus not. Since the boosters have not been adjusted for, for the Delta variant and the boosters are failing in Israel, my best advice is uh, to pass on the boosters. Yeah. Well, um, all right. Let's let's get on to um, this one from Wendy. She says, thank you for standing on principles and putting forth uh, this important information for people. I am not vaccinated, nor do I intend to be. I have also not contracted SARS-CoV-2, so no natural immunity. What precautions should I take as a preventive measure? I'm getting a lot of these kinds of questions in actually, Dr. McCullough. I am mainly concerned about large groups at church, weddings, funerals, parties. Should I avoid large groups, do you think? Uh, or is this okay to do if I'm taking vitamins and the protocol and have good nasal and oral hygiene as put forth by Dr. McCullough? God bless. I think what she's doing right now is adequate. Uh, the highest risk type of events that people can do are things in very small rooms. I think public restrooms are very high risk because so many people go mm -hmm. in and out. We know the virus comes out in coffee and also comes out in the GI tract. The air is heavy. There's little ventilation. We know about six to eight air exchanges per hour in a room is adequate to actually uh, reduce the viral load. So believe it or not, I think planes are fine. Their planes are full. People are traveling. We're not seeing outbreaks among planes. We know the classroom is safe. There has not been any student to teacher transmission. Uh, we know churches are safe, that we haven't seen uh, large uh, breakouts in churches. There was a congregate setting paper that was published in MMWR. And I do want to bring your attention to this 
uh, and this was in Barnstable County in Massachusetts. And it's an important paper because it, it highlights uh, an important principle. And it was published in the MMWR July 30th, 21. The first author is Catherine Brown. And what it demonstrated is with some large outdoor activities, large public gatherings that they um, had uh, described, that there was an outbreak of the Delta variant. And the findings were that two thirds of people who got it were fully vaccinated. So if you were to go to um, you know, a wedding or a big event, a funeral, and I've, I have seen patients actually contracted at funerals, I guess, because funerals, they, they, it's a close environment. Uh, be careful. The vaccinated are equal, if not more likely to get COVID-19 than the unvaccinated. All right. Kimberly says, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I am pro-immune system and early treatment. I've chosen to not receive the vaccine. Of course, that's part of the argument out there these days. Um, I have multiple friends who've been vaccinated. They are contracting COVID-19, as we talked about up top of the program, uh, uh, Dr. McCullough. So they're, they're still getting COVID with the vaccine, and they're ending up in the ER with COVID pneumonia, uh, Kimberly says. Where am I going? I live in Punta Vedra Beach, Florida. And when I asked my physician about ivermectin, uh, I was told, and, and listen to this. See, this is what really irritates me. Uh, the doctor said, we do not prescribe fad treatments and that it was stupid of me not to get vaccinated. And that's what some of these uh, people are doing. Uh, she said she found a pharmacist in area who will fill a prescription uh, for it, but she needs a doctor to prescribe it. A lot of people are asking that with getting like ivermectin uh, prescribed. Uh, that's got to be through one of the telehealth uh, centers, isn't it? Yeah. So if uh, if the primary doctor doesn't prescribe it, I think the primary doctor does need to be put through uh, a, a few more steps and say, listen, can you refer me to somebody who does treat COVID-19? And if they say, no, I can't refer you to someone, then say, OK, well, I'm free for this. I'm leaving you and I'm going to use a telemedicine service and then go to the AAPS online guide and they will give you the list of telemedicine services. The popular ones are myfreedoctor.com, uh, American Frontline Doctors. Uh, frontline critical care consortium and uh, speak with an MD um, uh, and frontline MDS. Those are some of the common ones. Just with respect to ivermectin, I'm looking at the data right now. Uh, we have a total of 65 supportive studies, 47,717 patients enrolled, 32 random, randomized trials. And in the applications where ivermectin is used in prophylaxis, it's 86% effective. In early treatment, 29 studies, it's 66% effective. In late treatment in the hospital, 22 studies is 40% protective. And then the overall impact on mortality is 57% reduction in mortality. So for that doctor who says it's a fad treatment, um, I think that doctor represents a, a systemic failure. It's a systemic failure of doctors to know the evidence, uh, to seek and learn on their own. I think doctors are taking a party line from either social media, major media, or our agencies, which are not giving the truth with respect to the body of data. 47,717 patients, Malcolm, enrolled in clinical trials. 47,000, that's not a fad. These people are involved in trials, the product works. 
Yeah, it, it is a, a sad state of affairs, what's happened in uh, our country, number one, my friends, and uh, within the medical community, uh, which we've been talking about right along here, uh, you know, the, the, the doctors that are really treating, uh, and, and the whole key is treating uh, COVID, which we've been talking about, the early treatment, uh, you know, they're in the minority, clearly, and the vast majority. Let's face it, it, it's an infiltration from the very top down. And the scare tactics and fear, like the story Dr. McCullough talked a moment ago about the doctor who got the, the vaccine injury. Uh, it, and we're seeing a lot of that out there. And, it, and it's, it's very, very sad, but it, it's a new reality of medicine and uh, the politics in America. In fact, you, you probably out there never thought that intersection would be uh, so vibrant as it is with medicine and politics, but by golly, it really, really is. Well, listen, uh, we are talking with Dr. Peter McCullough here on The Voice of a Nation. Uh, you catch my show here every day at 6 p.m. And there's an encore at 10 as well later in the day. All the shows on America Out Loud, by the way, go to podcast. As you know, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough's show, The McCullough Report, that goes to podcast early in the week, uh, about Monday or uh, latest Tuesday morning. His show plays on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Please catch that, The McCullough Report. It plays at 2 p.m. Eastern time in the afternoon, and there is an encore at 7 a little bit later in the day. We'll take a quick pause here, my fellow Americans, and we'll be back with more with Dr. Peter McCullough and more questions in just a moment. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel-packed vitamins. Uh, looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them, and you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Voice of a Nation. It is Malcolm Out Loud here, yours truly, and uh, trying to get as many of these questions answered as we can. There's simply not enough hours in the day, my friends, and we really are trying to get to as many of them. Uh, the outpouring of people uh, to, uh, with, and my heart goes out to people. You know, I read these every day, every hour of the day, so many coming in, and I just, um, I feel for people. I, I feel the sense of urgency 
and the fear out there, and it's it's incumbent on us to uh, get this information out there. Now, Dr. McCullough, I want to talk next. This one from John here. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of hype about the children, but this is interesting. He he says, okay, vaccines are coming soon for children under 12. This is a big problem. How should I prove to my ex that my kid doesn't need a vax? Please help by posting data links on the website. Has the CDC come out with a survival rate for kids under 12? What about hospitalization rate? Proof of VAERS events for kids under 18. I need some facts to help overcome the fear of Delta and future variants. If a kid doesn't have an underlying condition, the risk doesn't outweigh the benefit of a vax, right? And how do you answer that? I would answer wrong. The risks do weigh the benefits and we'll outfit you with a paper by Tracy Hogue, H-O-E-G, from the University of California, Davis in Sacramento. The title is August 30th, SARS-CoV-2 messenger RNA vaccination associated myocarditis or heart damage in children ages 12 to 17, a stratified national database analysis. Conclusion, a child with the vaccines is more likely to get heart damage and be hospitalized than get hospitalized with COVID-19 itself. So this is an important analysis. And in fact, this was brought up at the FDA meetings on September 17th, and the FDA did not dispute this. The second paper to quote is by Ronald Kostoff, K-O-S-T-O-F-F, and um, it's a multinational paper. And the title of the paper is, Why Are We Vaccinating Children Against COVID-19? The conclusions from this paper are that across all age ranges, one is more likely to die after the vaccine than die, take the chances and get COVID-19 and die with COVID-19. So both of these papers, I think, uh, clearly show that children, the risks outweigh the benefits. All right. Kevin says he, he loves, he's listening to the uh, all the shows, the podcast shows, and the Q&A sessions are helpful. If you look at the deaths and adverse reactions to the vaccines from an FDA approval point of view and take into account the multi-million test subjects, would this pass FDA approval today as is? In general, for any medicinal product, even a big diabetes product or a big cholesterol-lowering product, if we get more to more than 50 unexplained deaths, that product is off the market. So there's no way from with considering the post-release data on safety that these vaccines should be approved. Now, you may ask, how, how did they even get through the August 23rd approval meeting at the FDA? Well, they didn't look at the VAERS data. They only looked at the legacy randomized trial data, which is much, much smaller sample set. And the, the person who signed the conditional approval letter for Comirnaty, the BioNTech product, Dr. Gruber, she resigned a week later. If that gives you any idea of how problematic these vaccines are with respect to mortality and safety. All right, here's a question on bioengineering uh, from Tom. I've watched several of your programs and have enjoyed the information greatly. Three of my children are teachers in Washington State, and I'm concerned whether or not the vaccinated pose a danger to unvaccinated due to shedding. Is the spike protein transmissible through shedding from vaccinated people, which in effect causes unvaccinated people to be vaccinated? Wow, say that fast three times. Or perhaps vaccinated people just give the virus to the unvaccinated and the spike protein is caused by the body's response to the virus. Okay, so shedding is um, 
the transference of the spike protein during through body fluids is likely to happen is not yet been proven. We know the virus itself, the Chinese have shown that it is in body fluids. And so it makes sense that the spike protein could be transmitted through body fluids. I would restrict it to a concern over kissing or sexual contact within the first four weeks after vaccination. And the recipient can get some mild symptoms, a change in menses. I've seen expression of uh, shingles as an example, some general fever and chills. Now, the second part of unpacking that question is, can a vaccinated person carry the whole virus? Can they carry the infection in a preclinical phase, the Delta variant, and pass it to an unvaccinated? The answer is definitely yes. So Chow and colleagues, as well as Liu and colleagues have clearly showed 251 uh, to 1,000-fold increased viral load among those with the Delta variant uh, and certainly those vaccinated compared to those unvaccinated with other legacy variants. So the vaccinated, in a sense, are loaded up and set to transmit the virus, and that's what our CDC directors told us. Yeah, yeah this one is on EUA liability. I thought this was a, a, a real interesting twist. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies that are producing vaccines for COVID-19 are protected by an EUA from liability. Now, everyone out there should understand that this, uh, these experimental uh, vaccines that they, they get a pass. There's, there's no, they're not held to any responsibility. You can't sue them. I mean, it's you take, and you sign that when you do this vaccine business. So this person goes on to say, that being said, shouldn't there also be an EUA protecting doctors, hospitals, and pharmacists who want the freedom of choice to treat COVID-19 using alternative protocols such as early treatment therapeutics? You know, we wish that the EUA as a kind of a novel regulatory tool uh, could be more encompassing and, and be egalitarian, but it's really not. The EUAs have not been fairly used. The EUA that was placed on hydroxychloroquine effectively was a restriction. Uh, we haven't seen EUAs come out for favipiravir. That's a oral polymerase inhibitor used in, in five countries. We haven't seen uh, rematriban, that's an antihistamine used in Japan. So we could have used the EUA for other products and we didn't. They're currently used for the monoclonal antibodies and the vaccines. And as uh, people have uh, recognized, there is full indemnification for all the stakeholders right now. So it's not fair. And I do think you have to be wary of what you sign up for when you sign a consent. The consent form for the vaccine says, we're not sure if this is gonna work, we're not sure if it's safe and you have no recourse once it's injected in your body. All right. You know, we're getting a lot of information in here. A lot of questions to Dr. McCullough, people from Australia, you know, and, I, and I've seen a lot of reports, uh, news reports coming out of Australia. And it, this would be another conversation we'd have. But the, the news is horrific. It, the crackdown and what's taking place in Australia. Listeners are sending me videos and testimonies and stories and I, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, they're being tackled in streets for not wearing a mask and, I mean, being harassed like I've never seen before by authorities. Uh, let me get to a couple of these questions now from Australia. Paul says, um, in one of your recent interviews, you mentioned research that Australia has more deaths from the COVID vaccine than COVID itself. Can you please advise where you got this information? You know, that information came through some press releases. And so, we would uh, dig for that. And I bet the listener can find them themselves that because there are so few cases of COVID-19 in Australia that we know because uh, there's so many more patients exposed to the vaccine than exposed to COVID, it makes a lot of sense that even though death is rare, it's gonna be much more common with the vaccine than COVID because simply the exposures are so different. But I wanted to comment on Australia just in general. 
is um, Australia is the best example of whatever's going on in the world. It can't really be about COVID because COVID is such a minor problem there. They have such few cases, yet they're shooting rubber bullets at each other and, yeah. and tackling each other in the streets. So whatever mass psychosis is going on, mm. it's really on full display in Australia. And I think the rest of the world ought to look at Australia and try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I've got a lot of friends out there. It's sad, sadder than sad. What's happening? I, I don't understand it either. What, and your description there uh, fits perfectly. Uh, Myra says, I've not been vaccinated, but my workplace is making it mandatory for all staff to receive that dose by the 15th of October. There's so much pressure here in Victoria, Australia to get vaccinated, and it is being used to blackmail the country into getting out of lockdown. So it has caused an enormous division in the community as the unvaccinated are being blamed for the state's lack of freedoms. What is the survival rate if you get the virus? And what is the total percentage of deaths worldwide from COVID? I'm concerned about my elderly parents who are 85 and 84 and have not received the vaccine either. How much risk am I putting them in if I am asymptomatic? The analysis goes back to that cost of analysis. Doesn't matter where you are, you're more likely to die of the vaccine than contract COVID-19 and die of COVID-19. I mean, that's just the reality of it. The vaccines are not sufficiently safe, nor are they sufficiently effective to come into a positive risk-benefit analysis. What I would ask if I was that person is, if you take the vaccine, what indeed does that buy you? Does that buy you three months of employment or six months of employment? Hmm. Uh, you know, what, what type of social contract exists if you take a vaccine, if you took the risk of a vaccine? Are you good forever? Are you get to shop? Do you get to, will people not shoot rubber bullets at you? You know, I, I am not sure what people are thinking with the vaccine. What do they really get when they take the vaccine? It seems like such short termism that they're thinking, gosh, I just need to get get a vaccine so I can live for tomorrow. People need to think what's what it's going to be like in a month or two down the road and how much does a vaccine really guarantee you? All right. There's a few questions now about these nasal washes. And let me get to a couple of these now. Uh, Dave says, any concern about killing the microbiome of the mouth and nose with the iodine mouthwash and nasal spray? Good question. Uh, Anti-infective dentist Paul Gossett, who's been on the McCullough Report, informs me you actually have more bugs, especially in your gums and your teeth that are pathogenic than probably you have as, as good guys. And it's not a bad thing to actually have some anti-infective uh, dentistry for those of you who have some periodontal disease or gum disease, and as well as for those of you who have sinus disease and sinus congestion. So there may be a benefit. Um, I think uh, short-term use during these outbreaks is reasonable. Remember, if you're iodine sensitive, you can always back off to dilute um, hydrogen peroxide, a very dilute sodium hypochlorite, really just a few drops of household bleach is very effective. Uh, and then even just scope or Listerine. I don't think anybody would blame scope or Listerine for hurting their microbiome. Okay. Uh, from uh, Cecilia, I just listened to Malcolm and uh, Dr. McCullough. I did not get the specifics on the recommendation for oral and nasal washes uh, to reduce viral loads. Can you help me on this? What is the regiment specifics? Thanks so much for all you're doing for America. The top program is Povidone iodine or betadine. So you buy a bottle of this, or you can buy actually a prepared nasal spray and use that in the, in the nose. If you take the bottle of it, it's a 1% solution, 1%. So that basically means a few drops 
in a juice glass of water, fill the rest of the glass up with water, mix a brown solution. You can uh, take that in your mouth, swish it, gargle it, spit it out. It's a brown liquid. I would advise following up with Scope or Listerine to go ahead and clear out the mouth. You can still take that brown solution and take a dropper and spray it up the nose and snort it out. Do that in the shower so it doesn't make a mess. And then after that, you're done for the next 12 hours. Do it again uh, towards the end of the day. If the nose is too messy for you, you can actually buy on Amazon. You can buy a Povidone iodine pre-diluted nasal spray and you simply spray it up there and snore it out. As soon as this hits the virus, it kills it. You don't have to go way up in the nose and all you're reducing is the viral load. It takes a certain number of viral particles to tip the body into infection stage. Otherwise, the body fights these off. You know, we can't fail to remind everybody as well that uh, all the information, all the questions, everything we're talking about are for educational purposes. It's important to remember that. You know, keep in mind, every one of these questions, everyone's personal story is exactly that, very personal to you. We, you, you know, you can't treat this all as specific medical advice one way or another. You really have to get that from your, your doctor or your legal advice or any of that, as you understand there locally, wherever you're at. Um, so it's important to mention, again, educational, informational purposes, but uh, please don't take uh, every little syllable as uh, uh, complete medical advice, uh, to say the least. Make sure you take this information, learn from it. Uh, that's the design of it. And then get with your doctor or your attorneys or your, your personal um, resources and, and make a final conclusion of what's safe for you. You know, I went through uh, the COVID thing myself. And uh, as some of you probably know out there, if you've heard me before, and my wife did as well. Now, my wife got very, very ill from it. And that's another thing I, I want to highlight here as we've been talking uh, with Dr. McCullough on these Q&As is that, you know, every case is so different. I mean, mine is different from yours, different from my wife's, different from someone else's. And that's the real weird, odd thing about COVID-19, this uh, virus, is it, and it, it, really I say virus, I, but the inside of me wants to say a bioweapon back to you, clearly. Um, but uh, is that it tackles everybody differently. I mean, it's designed to go after your body in such a way, but everybody, it's it, it's it treats differently. And so you don't know how it's going to attack your body versus somebody else. Now, in the case of my wife, and some of you have heard me, you know that, you know, I had given her the early treatment and thank God I had the early treatment meds. And, you know, I had a series of, of doctors, including Dr. McCullough and others who were um, uh, helping to guide me. Uh, and we gave her the ivermectin, the HCQ, we gave her uh, the uh, Novavax, uh, the, the blood thinner shots, the zinc, the A, the D, the entire regimen that you hear here all the time. And, you know, I, I gave her that. I, I had it as well at the same time, but it got into her chest in a very bad way. So she had it, uh, I mean, 10 times worse than I could have ever had it. Um, and I, I was giving her all of these meds as I was not feeling well and trying to get her to the other side to avoid the hospital. Because one of the things that rang in my ears loud and clear throughout all of this is avoid the hospital at every chance you can. Don't get to the hospital because then you take the chance of the ventilator. And that's where a lot of these deaths have come from, quite frankly. And uh, so my goal was to keep her out of the hospital. And I, again, had, um, you know, mustered the best advice. Uh, the best meds I could. And I tried to do that. But with my wife, it got so uh, 
scary because she couldn't breathe anymore. Her oxygen levels had dropped to the low 80s. I had her on a, a five liter oxygen machine here, which was not doing the job. Uh, so I had no uh, choice, but we had to get her to the hospital because of the oxygen factor. Not that they were going to treat the rest of COVID because they don't treat COVID is the problem, but you've got to have the oxygen factor and you've got to have the early treatment. So I made that decision, a uh, very difficult decision. It was, I have to tell you, and I made it with Dr. McConnell. We talked about it and I said, you know, this is what we're going to have to do and, and pray to God that we can get her through it. And, you know, I just want to share with you, it, it, it was the gr by grace of those early treatments that really did the job because again, they don't treat that in the hospital. That's the sad reality of this thing, you know? And, you know, when I got her into the emergency room, she was in ICU for 10 days. And here's, here's the statement the head doctor said to me on the phone, because you can't go in the hospitals because of COVID and all of that, you know. The doctor said to me this. He said, she's very, very ill, critical care, Malcolm. And uh, she's going to, we're going to have to know in the next couple, two, three hours, uh, we'll know. Uh, we've got a, a machine called the heated high flow. Now, remember what I'm telling you here with your hospital, your facility, the heated high flow. It produces 60 liters of oxygen in a non-invasive manner all around the person. He said, now, if, if she it, it reacts to this in a good way, we'll have a chance but if she doesn't, we have no other alternative but to put her in a medical coma on, on a ventilator. And, you know, my, my friends, I prayed at that moment as I had been doing to God and just said I, I, I just prayed for her, um, uh, her safety and that we could get her through this moment. And, um, and I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was scared for her very much. So she's, you know, she's not an old woman. She's a young woman. And I uh, was afraid for my children, my two teenagers and, and all of that, as you can imagine, as all of you are going through as well. It's, it's a very personal thing. And, you know, uh, the, the miracle of it is, my friends, her body. And she, she had been a healthy person before this. She had no comorbidities, by the way, but it responded. And that was the prayer answered that, that evening. Is she, it responded. And it responded to the next couple of days. She continued to make progress. And the short of it is we were blessed. We were lucky. We were, oh, I, I'll tell you, incredibly lucky uh, that, and, you know, she's still recovering from it. It's a, it's a long-term process now when it gets into your chest, but she was compromised. It's a longer story for another day because she was in a terrible car accident just before this COVID. And see, that's a problem. If, you're, if your immune system is compromised in any way, as hers was from her chest and from the accident, someone had crossed the line and it hit her in a head-on collision and almost killed her with that, her and my son. Uh, but that's, a, again, another story. And, um, but that happened just weeks before this. I, so I explain this to you so you understand th that being compromised and it allowed COVID to get in there and really do damage. So my friends, we have to uh, count our blessings, number one, and we have to fight this aggressively. And we have to get the right treatment, the right answers. Uh, COVID is a very personal story for all of us. We are doing our very best here. I want you to know that at America Out Loud, trying, there's just not enough hours in the day to get answers to the questions and get them out there to you all uh, and try to get all the information out. We don't just do COVID, obviously, as you see from the platform, uh, but it really is liberty and justice for all. And we're on a fight to save our great nation and to help as many people as we possibly can. So my fellow Americans, I'm going to leave it right there. I thank you for being with us on the mission here as always. And thank Dr. Peter McCullough. And remember, it's time to get involved and get loud. <laughs>